Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to Rooting Around. Um, I'm your moderator, uh, Jack Hamilton. Um, I will not give my own bio. It is available in the back of your program. Um, our first speaker uh, today is uh, Grail Marcus, uh, who will be reading, uh, who will be giving a talk entitled No One Gets the Last Word on the Travels of Geishi Wiley's Last Kind Words Blues. Uh, Grail is a program committee member at EMP. Uh, he's the author of The History of Rock and Roll in Ten Songs, Lipstick Traces, and The Old Weird America, The World of Bob Dylan's Basement Tapes. His forthcoming books include Three Songs, Three Singers, Three Nations, and a sixth revised edition of his book Mystery Train, which was first published in 1975. He lives in Oakland, and he's asked me to inform all of you that he comes here for the smoked salmon. So I'm here to talk about Gishi Wiley's Last Kind Words Blues, recorded in 1930. And, you know, whenever the EMP comes up with a theme for its conference, um, I try to find some way to squeeze what I actually want to talk about into its concept. And I don't think I'm, I, I, I doubt if I'm the only one. And I was thinking about this, and I, you know, was looking this over and thought, what in the world does this have to do with? transgression and weirdness and all of that. And transgression, this you know, meaningless, vapid, academic <laughs> word. And I realized that, in fact, what uh, the way this fits is that Last Kind Words Blues is a song that transgresses against itself, against its own apparent form. And yet, at the same, the same time, it is a record that is so singular, so different, and so unique, um, that so completely holds its own shape and has its own moral integrity, that anybody who, um, who has the effrontery or has the nerve or the bravery uh, to try and sing this song, to record this song, to do his or her own version of it, is going to inevitably transgress against it and maybe has to realize that you have to do that uh, to get anywhere near it. So that's my conceptual fit. Um, last, kind's last Kind Word Blues, I'm not going to play it, um, it is a strange, singular, ghostly song um, recorded by this woman, Gishi Wiley, backed up by her musical partner, Elvie Thomas. Um, it, is, it is a ghostly record, and one of the things that made it even more ghostly is that after it was recorded, uh, both Gishi Wiley and Elvie Thomas absolutely disappeared from history, and nobody knew anything about them. And in the late 50s and the 1960s, and particularly in the 70s and ever after, people, blues researchers, uh, tried to find out what, anything they could about these people. And they found out nothing. They didn't find out their real names. They didn't find out where they were from, where they were born, if they died, when they died, what kind of lives they lived, nothing at all. Uh, there was speculation. There was rumor. Um, but there was nothing. Not a single fact. Uh, it could be presumed that Gishi Wiley, G-E-E-S-H-I-E, -E, was not the real name of whoever it was was singing on this record. It is not a real name. And in fact, in the, the, uh, among the six songs that Gishi Wiley and L.B. Thomas recorded together in 1930 in Grafton, Wisconsin, 
there's a little kind of minstrel skit at the beginning of one of them where L.V. Thomas calls Gishi Wiley Gitchy. So they didn't even spell it right, and it wasn't the real name anyway. Well, Last Kind Words Blues is a blues. It isn't a blues. It's a folk lyric song, which means that it's made up of stray fa- fragments of, uh, of phrases, of couplets, of whole verses, of single lines um, that come from hundreds of other songs, uh, some of which have no particular shape, many of which don't even have names. They're floating verses, floating lines that just pass from song to song, black and white, city and rural, 19th century, 20th century. Um, And it's a form that allows any individual to, to draw from this well of commonplace phrases and then to put them together in his or her own way so that you speak as if these words are yours alone. They came to you. You're speaking directly from the heart. No one said these words before. Um, and it, it is a magical kind of transformation. We know something about uh, Gishi Wally and her partner, L.V. Thomas, today, thanks to two people. One is John Jeremiah Sullivan, who wrote a piece in the New York Times magazine about a year ago called The Ballad of Gishi and Elvie, which was the result of several years of of unbelievably obsessive work on his part, and he found out who these people were, what their real names were, where they were born, when they were born, how they lived um, with, in the case of Elvie Thomas, all through her life, uh, even convened a reunion of of her, her relatives, of her parishioners, Uh, so that he could sit down with people and they could tell him all about her. And she lived until 1979. Um, Gishi Wally, nevertheless, still disappears after 1931, uh, disappears from history, and she has not yet been caught. Um, When you listen to Last Kind Words Blues, you get the sense of somebody making something up out out of the blue. That is what piqued the interest of Mac McCormick, who's a blues researcher, began work in the 1940s, and um, most of what we know about Robert Johnson is because of discoveries that he made, discoveries he now doubts. He's a confusing kind of guy. But he had a theory. He had a theory that the blues began not in Mississippi, uh, but in Texas. He's from Houston. He's a Texan. Um, Maybe there's a little hometown patriotism there. But he knew something about L.V. Thomas. He didn't know Last Kind Words Blues, but he knew one or two of her records, and he had this idea that maybe her name, as it appeared on the record label, uh, L.V., E-L-V-I-E, wasn't really her name. Maybe her name was L. V. It wasn't uncommon for women of her generation to be named with initials. So he did what, you know, Um, Philip Marlowe would have done. He opened the phone book, (laughs) and he found an L.V. Thomas in Houston. And so he called her up, and are you L.V. Thomas, the blues singer? Well, I used to be, but I don't like to talk about that anymore since I found the master, Jesus. Um, He went to see her in 1961 um, when she was almost 70 years old, And he got her to talk. Um, And the most striking thing she said 
she, it turned out she was born in 1891. She was as old or maybe even older than Charlie Patton. She was as old as any blues performer we know of uh, who's been recorded, with possible exception of Memphis Minnie. When was Memphis Minnie born? 1897. She was older than Memphis <laughs> Minnie, even though she recorded later. Um, and she said to Mac McCormick that she started playing blues guitar when she was 11 years old in 1902. And she said, there was blues even then. That means she remembered when there wasn't. <laughs> and that comes through in her own music. In 19... 30, she is singing a song that the Paramount Records entitled um, Motherless Child Blues, because it was already a phrase. Uh, the, the, the term motherless child never appears in the song. This is how the song begins. My mama told me just before she died. 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 The first three lines are said exactly the same. The last line has slight change in inflection, a slight weighting of the words told me, so that the line just begins to sink and you begin to come down with it. Now, she never tells you what her mama told her. She doesn't need to. She's playing off and again, this is L.V. Thomas, not Gishi Wally, but they're there in the studio, and Gishi Wally is playing second guitar, and this is a song that they performed together. She's playing off the, famili the familiarity of the folk lyric form, because in the folk lyric form, when you say, Your mo my mama told me, this isn't Smokey Robinson. There's no shop around. Um, and there's no mother looking over his shoulder and make sure you do what, what she says. In the folk lyric form, your mother never tells you anything until just before she dies. <laughs> and so that's, that's, the, that's the drama here. She is bringing people into the song, and you believe her. You believe this is about her mama and herself. And, and that's what, all that you need. This, the moment where they're together, and my mama told me, and she remembers that. And that's far more important than anything her mother <coughs> might have said. But again, she remembers when there was no such thing as blues, when there were fragments that would turn into blues. But when blues happened, people would recognize it as something new. So she is bringing, but she is bringing what can only be blues in terms of feeling, in terms of form, into a an aesthetic form, a formal form that wasn't yet blues. Blues comes forth to trap, to make art out of, to put you one remove from the kind of feelings that these fragments, like my mama told me just before she died, um, are there and, and they're almost inarticulate. It is to give them a, a firmer, stronger voice that can't be stepped away from, that can't be gotten away from. The feeling you get when you listen to motherless child blues is that blues is being invented or discovered right in this moment. Suddenly, the previous 30 years or whatever they might have been when blues is taking place, when blues has already been recorded, when uh, 
people like Blind Mom and Jefferson and Charlie Patton have already sold tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of records. None of this, none of this has happened. None of this matters. It's happening in the studio right away. And you're witnessing a song that is beginning to come together as a blues. You might be hearing the first blues. And this carries over into Gishi Wiley's song, Last Kind Words Blues, recorded at the same time with now L.V. Thomas playing second guitar. In this song, her mama tells her something just before she dies. There are all different kinds of folk lyric fragments spun through the song. Sometimes it's a single line repeated twice. Uh, sometimes it's a single line with a follow-up. Um, sometimes it's a stray phrase. And along with all these you know, bits of familiarity, my mama told me just before she died, the Mississippi River. And again, in the folk lyric form, the Mississippi River is only one thing. It's not muddy. It's not wet. It's not full of fish. The Mississippi River, you know it's deep and wide. And you can say something again after that, but you have to say that first. It's only, it's not the Mississippi River until it's deep and wide, not in the song. But in Last Kind Words Blues, there are strange things happening. There are lines that appear in no other song that didn't come from anywhere. Um, Last kind words I hear my daddy say. The last kind words I hear my daddy say. That's the opening of the song. Again, a fragment. It's not taking the blues form. Last kind words I heard my daddy say. Last kind words I heard my daddy say. He turned around and then he walked away. I just made that up. But that's the way a blues uh, line would go. That's the way a blues verse would go. Nope. There is no punchline. There is no follow-through. There is no completion. It hangs there. It's suspended. And he says to her, if I die, if I die in the German war, I want you to send my body, send it to my mother-in-law. If I get killed, if I get killed, please don't bury my soul. Just leave me out. Let the buzzards eat me whole. Those lines are so strange. They're so anomalous, and they're so of themselves, they're so unique, that many blues researchers who cannot abide the idea that anybody could invent anything that they haven't heard before <laughs> have, have rewritten these words to make them sound ordinary. Send my body, send my body to my mother-in-law? It must be money. Send my money to my mother-in-law. I mean, look, this may be the greatest mother-in-law joke in history. Send my body to my mother-in-law. You don't send your money to your mother-in-law. Um, the, the uncanniness for us today, listening to a, a song recorded in 1930, to a reference to the German war, and we know, and she didn't, that there was another German war coming, that this song takes place between the two and you know, reaches out in both directions. My mama told me just before she died, blessed daughter, don't you be so wild. If you see me coming across the rich man's field, I went to the depot, I looked up on the sun. Again, these are all folk lyric lines that come after the ones I've just quoted. They're kind of to lull you back into a sense of familiarity. You know the ground beneath your feet. Most strikingly, the Mississippi River, you know it's deep and wide, 
I can stand right here seeing my face from the other side, if those are the words at all, because this is where the song stops. This is where, and it stops musically, it stops in terms of the way she sings, where the lines that she's always stretching out on I, she's always stretching out on Laud. She's, but here in this verse, it's like the whole song almost comes to a complete stop because she is pressing on certain words so hard um, that she is sucking the air out of them and she's leaving you feeling as if you're frozen, waiting for what's ev- whatever is going to come next and afraid of what it's going to be. It, al- it almost slips in. I can stand right here, see my face from the other side. You can't do that. You can't stand right here and see your face from the other side. You're in two places at once, if not in three places at once. It is a complete scramble of reality that is taking place in this moment. It is so radical that people, again, can't accept that that's what she is saying. And they say, no, no, she's saying, I I can stand right here and see my baby from the other side. Oh, you still can't do that. it doesn't really make it any better. Uh, it doesn't make it any more conventional to change that. It just isn't as strange that I can stand right here and see my face from the other side. The way this fragment works in the folkloric form is that you stand right there and I see my baby on the other side. Because I love her so much, I can see all the way across the Mississippi River. This is not what is happening here. So this is a song that is attacking its own form. It's attacking its own premises. But all through the song, the way Gishi Wally sings is she drops, she backs away from, from her own words. She turns her head. She lets her voice drop. She muffles her words. So uh, my mama told me just before she died, uh, blessed daughter, please don't be so wild. Could be, could be precious daughter. Could be, don't be so wise. Don't think you know everything. I went to the depot. I looked up at the sun. When you go to the depot, you don't look up at the sun. You'll be blinded. The folk lyric form is, I looked up at the sign. That's what an ordinary person does. You get to the depot. You look to see when the train is coming. That's what the depot is for. That's what it's all about. That's what people do there. That's not what's happening in this song. People want to change it and make it so. If you see me come and cross the rich man's field, that is a strange image. Maybe it's just the Richmond field. You know, a field in Richmond. Okay, I like that better. It doesn't matter. What is even more frightening is that after this verse about I can see my baby, I can see my face from the other side. What you do to me, baby, it never gets out of me. I believe I'll see you after I cross the deep blue sea. And it's just kind of tossed off and the song ends. And it's very, very comforting. Unless you remember that in the folk lyric form, the deep blue sea, crossing the deep blue sea means only one thing, death. It's crossing from this side to the other side. But I believe I'll see you. Because we don't know what you do to me, baby. We don't know who the baby is in this song. My daddy told me, the last kind words I hear my daddy say, could be my lover, could be my husband, could be my father. 
could be someone I looked up to. I look up to. Does this figure travel throughout the whole song? Is this figure singing the whole song? Who's anybody in this song? Is that who she's addressing at the end of the song? I believe I see you after I cross the deep blue sea. The problem is she doesn't sing that. That's what you hear because that's what the folk lyric form trains you to hear. But isn't what she says? She says, I don't believe. She says, I may not see you after I cross the deep blue sea. Just taking everything back. Who knows what she meant to sing? The folk lyric form is tricky. It mandates that you think, that you say, and you feel certain things. And yet, as a song takes shape, just as, uh, as a novel takes shape, there are certain things that become inevitable and certain things that become impossible. You can't drown on dry land. If you have no arms and legs, you can't strangle somebody. Uh, it just isn't going to work. And as this song takes shape, certain ordinariness in the folk lyric form becomes impossible. And the song is demanding things that are more extreme, that are more unacceptable, that are, that are stranger, that are different. And so that is what is going on. She is breaking with the form, and she is telling a story that from that time to this, people have found unacceptable, unbelievable, and they have tried to rehear it. Well, this song began to travel into the common imagination uh, with the release of the movie Crumb, where it where it's played in 1994. And the first version of this song that I want to talk about by other people, it's not the first time anybody covered it. It's the first time anybody covered it, interestingly, was just in 2009 with the Dex Romweber duo, the guitarist Rex and his sister, the drummer Sarah, uh, and Jack White. And they tried to do this song. And, and they looked at this song, and it was as if they said, there's no way in the world we can do this song. So we have to wreck it. And what they did was they did it as a kind of hysterical Broadway melodrama. Uh, you know, maybe something out of Springtime for, you know, out of uh, <laughs> Springtime for Hitler. Uh, it was just crazed and it was screeching and it was yelling. And Jack White is making sounds, sounds like a whole flock of buzzards. He makes buzzard sounds that have landed on your shoulders. And it's really a kind of melodramatic horror movie. Um, and, you know, with this song, if you're at all scholastic, you listen to it and you have to make choices. Does she say precious or blessed? Does she say baby or face? Does she say I will see you, I may not see you? Son, sign. You have to make choices. And uh, the Rom Webbers and Jack White said the hell with it. And they get to a point, the Mississippi River it's deep, it's deep and wide. Uh, it's deep and wide. I can stand right here. Gobble, gobble, you can't understand anything they're saying because they, we don't know what she's saying. I don't believe what she's saying. Just make some noise. Get over it. Get over the hump. Um, it is an absolutely thrilling performance. Uh, these are people who are daring. Um, they are not afraid of this song or they're so afraid of it that they're going to run right over it. I asked Jack White last year, I said, whose idea was it to do this song? He said, God's. 
God's idea. It was definitely God's idea. And he said, well, actually, it, w- it was my idea, but um, I liked God's better. I would go with that. Um, in 2011, uh, the Mekons took up this song. 80 years uh, after Gishi Wali had had, uh, more than 80 years after she'd actually had her name affixed to a, a, a tangible object, they took up this song. Um, and Jeff Tweedy, John Langford said to me, uh, I have to read this, Jeff Tweedy played me the original Wiley tune, and we both scratched our head about it, heads about it. He played it for Lou Edmonds, the Mekon who can seemingly play every stringed instrument on earth. And we set about trying to imitate the extremely non-intuitive structure of the song. Because just as the words are not intuitive, just as the words don't fit themselves in the way that they're supposed to fit their form, neither do the chords, neither does the melody, neither does the rhythmic structure. Remember, again, we're dealing with two women, one of whom was there before there were blues, and carries that with her. And they're making music together, they're creating songs together, And that pre-blues sense of reaching for a form that isn't quite there yet is all over their music. And that's why this song doesn't make sense to the Mekons as they're trying to figure it out. John John Langford said, it changes where you least expect it to into our sad punk rock brains. It was like some weird ancient effortless math rock. Once we deciphered it enough to play it, Lou proceeded to chop it up even to, into even more followable chunks. And he says the lyrics were a sort of jigsaw puzzle betwixt me and Tim, Sally Timms, uh, the Mekon singer I like to think of as an amoral country singer. And if they're in tune with the words of the original, that is further mystic magic and reptile brain thinking. They call the song Gishi, at least it has her name attached to it, has a high-stepping Frankie and Johnny ragtime beat. There's piano and fiddle and melodica. Tim's is on all sides of the story, as if she's seen all around the story and is looking back. The theme is, while there's still time. That's the phrase that's repeated over and over again. And that's absolutely appropriate, because last kind words is about time running out in every verse of that song. Time is running out. You're looking at death. While there's still time, while there's still time, she sings it while there's still time. She's placid. She's fatalistic. She's unconcerned. It is my intention to forget, she says, and she's looking you right in the eye. While there's still time, I'll stand outside of this. While there's still time, I'll resist your point of view. I'll dance around the ring while there's still time. Nobody could capture what Gishi Wali was doing better than that. But others did and others will. Just this year, Rhiannon Giddens of the Carolina Chocolate Drops, that wonderful group that really was formed to play the music of blackface Negro minstrels after, before and after the Civil War, she made this song the lead track um, on her first album under her own name. It's a brave thing to do. It's a foolhardy thing to do. You're not going to be able to match the original, particularly if you do a straight treatment, which she did. The T-Bone, Wa- uh, T-Bone Burnett 
almost said T-Bone Walker. Um, we should dream. With T-Bone Burnett as her producer, she's going to do a straight treatment. She's not going to do a screech fest, a horror movie like the Dex Rum Weber duo, and she's not going to make something, uh, an entirely original song out of it the way the Mekons did. And she sings this song as if it's a talisman of the way that certain blues can't be solved. They can't be heard, they can't be understood, and they certainly can't be played and sung to their bottom. And it, that unknowableness becomes the theme of the song. And again, she goes into it, she steps back from it. There's a kind of swaying emotional rhythm. She has a rhythm guitarist named Colin Linden. He smears the sound. He smears the chords. Everything is just a little bit unstable. And Rhiannon Giddens does what a rational, thoughtful singer has to do. She chooses between the words. She chooses between blessed and precious. She chooses between sun and sign. She chooses between rich man and Richmond. And she even chooses between I believe I'll see you and I may not see you. A hard choice. She comes down with I may not see you. But when she gets to the penultimate verse, when she gets to the verse where the song cracks, Mississippi River, you know it's deep and wide. I can stand right here. I can stand right here and see my face, see my baby from the other side. What is she going to choose? And she does something that is as uncanny as anything Gishiwali did. She manages to sing both words at the same time. <laughs> so that is the story of Last Kind Words Blues as far as it goes. Of course, it goes farther. Larry McMurtry titled his last novel uh, after the song, Last Kind Words Saloon. It's about a sign that Warren Earp, Wyatt Earp's brother, lugs all over the Southwest uh, in the 1880s. He just drags it from one saloon to another, and he tries to take the place over and hang up the sign. People say, you know, the only word in that thing that makes any sense is saloon. <laughs> Don't know what he was going on half the time. Don't know what he was going on half the time. People still don't know what Gishi Wiley was going on. Her real name was Lily May. Disappears from history in 1930. Who knows? Um, but she played with a woman. She was 21. She was 22. Her partner was 38. She played with a woman who'd been there when there was no such thing as blues. She brings the folk lyric form that's far older than blues, into a studio in 1930, and together she and L.V. Thomas put the pieces together. They catch the feeling that blues will later come forward um, to communicate. They catch that feeling in their own scattered way. They make a song that blues can't contain, can't account for, can't predict, and that's why we're still trying to sing it. Thanks. All right. <clears throat> Great. Uh, as is custom, we'll take uh, one or two quick 
questions for Grill as our next presenter uh, sets up. Uh, yes. You know, this, some of this will find its way into that book and, and some of it won't, but not in that voice and not in this, not in this way. Uh, the book is about the way in which certain songs seem to be uh, written by no one, that seem to just be there, that seems, seem to be written by necessity, that, that, seem, to be, that seem to come out of the ground. Uh, that that if they have origin, origins, they can never be found. And I constructed this book around three songs, one of which is in, indisputably written by a single person, made up, didn't exist before, is, doesn't borrow from anything, and that's uh, The Ballad of Hollis Brown by Bob Dylan. And yet it's a song that feels like an old folk song. It doesn't feel as if it was written by anybody. It feels received and handed down. Um, another is Last Kind Words Blues, which is half from half a folk lyric song and half a violation of a folk lyric song. It is both, it is both inherited, it's both received, it's both taken and transformed. And the third song is I Wish I Was a Mole in the Ground, which was first recorded by Bascom Lamar Lunsford. And it is a song that has no known authors. Um, there, you, there, there are verses in the song, there are lines in the song that you can kind of place as to when they, when they could have t first emerged, uh, going back to the 18th century uh, and some much later. And yet uh, n there, are, there are no claims and there's no research tying it to anything. It is a song that really does come out um, of the American air comes out of the Revolutionary War, it comes out of the Civil War. Beyond that, um, it comes out of, as John Langford would put it, a reptile brain. Um, <laughs> and those are three songs that were, you know, that appear to be written by no one. It's just an investigation of the notion of uh, songs without authors. All right, I think we have to move on to our next presenter, but there will be time afterwards for more Sadly, questions. Sadly, your next presenter is having some tech problems. Oh, right okay. Now, so, um, In that case.